It's takeover time on Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. This week, I'm on the ground at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado, where leaders from across the globe are gathered. The festival is a program of the Aspen Institute that brings together the most inspired and innovative thinkers, writers, artists, business people, teachers, and others. The idea is to dive deep into a world of ideas, thought, and discussion, and spark positive change. Already, we've heard illuminating thoughts and discussion. So that you can take part, I'm giving up the mic this week. A series of hosts, who are also speakers at the festival, will take over and interview Ideas Festival presenters across many disciplines. Perry Peltz is a documentary filmmaker and public health advocate, co-producing a series with the New York Times called Conversation on Race. Peltz hosts The Perry Peltz Show and Dr. Radio Reports on Sirius XM. She also reported for NBC, ABC, and CNN. In this episode, Peltz will interview other presenters at the festival. Here are her conversations. This is the Aspen Ideas To Go podcast takeover, and I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Seth Berkeley. Dr. Berkeley is the CEO of Gavi Alliance and the founder of the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative. And Dr. Berkeley, welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. Gavi has immunized a half billion children and saved seven million children's lives. Is that right? That is correct. That's pretty amazing. How have you done that? And tell us, first of all, let's even begin, what is Gavi? Well, Gavi is an organization that was established in 2000 as a public-private partnership. The problem it's, it's trying to solve is that there are powerful new vaccines that can save children's lives. Vaccines against cancer, vaccines against the two largest killers of children, diarrhea and pneumonia, but they weren't getting out to the kids. So Gavi works with companies. We purchase vaccines for 60% of the world's children, and using our buying power, we're able to drive prices down. We also use donor funds to co-finance those vaccines. So very poor countries pay just a little bit, and as they get wealthier, they pay more and more until eventually they graduate from Gavi's support. Well, that, that's it's kind of what I was thinking, Seth, because one of the questions that comes to my mind, at least, is why do we even need an organization like Gavi? Why is there a problem? With, with access to vaccines. It seems like such a basic concept. Well, of course, we believe it is a basic concept, but we work in the 73 poorest countries in the world, countries with a gross national income of less than now $1,570. We adjust that by inflation. And so some of these countries spend, you know, less than a dollar or two on their vaccine, uh, on, the, on their health budgets, and this makes it a real problem for them to be able to afford the new vaccines. The vaccines that we provide children cost about $950 for a full course in the United States. We now have gotten that price down to about $35, but for a very poor country, that is still a lot. Sure. As, as they get wealthier, though, they then have more fiscal space to be able to pay for it. So, in a sense, it's the best form of development. It's getting the most cost-effective interventions out to these countries when they can't afford them, and then as they, t- as they get wealthier, they take on the cost themselves. You know, we're going to talk about a little bit later about what happens here in the United States, because of course we have our own set of problems surrounding vaccines, but obviously nothing like what we see in developing nations. Can you describe, because most people, most of our listeners haven't been to these countries and seen what you have seen. 
Can you describe that? Well, I mean, it's, it's important to say that because one of the problems we have in, in, in places like the United States is that they don't see these diseases anymore. My wife is a doctor, ran the intensive care unit at a major medical center. She's never seen a case of measles, a case of tetanus. But in our countries, these diseases are still widespread. And so everybody's seen uncles, aunts. They've seen, you know, children in the next, you know, camp to theirs um, a die of these diseases. So there's a huge desire to be able to, to deal with this. For me, it's very personal. I worked once in a, in a refugee camp, and we used to get up every morning and count the graves of the children who died from the night before from oh measles. So th- this, these are the effects of these diseases, which today, of course, we, we just take for granted don't exist anymore. But they do, and they can come back if, they're not, if we're not immunized against them. When you talk about doing something like that, about making a daily count about the number of children who died from a disease like measles, which we, you know, we have the luxury here in the United States of really not even knowing what that is anymore, what is it that can be done? In, in developing nations, in countries, in Africa, to actually make a change? Well, I mean, the, the good news is today we have the highest immunization rates in history. So 86% of, of children in the world get the basic set of vaccines. Now, that means that 14% don't, and that number's higher in places like Africa. So first challenge is how do we extend our reach and try to reach every child with these vaccines? The second challenge is that um, the, I, I said the basic vaccines, we have these new and powerful vaccines against pneumonia, against diarrhea, against cancer, and we're now in the process of rolling those out. But today, if you ask what percent of the world's children receive all of the 11 vaccines that WHO recommends, it's less than 5%. So our goal, for example, in this next five-year period by 2020 is to get that number above 50%. And what this will do then is reduce the, the, the deaths that remain. We've done, we've done fairly well in reducing child deaths. The Millennium Development Goals uh, uh, goal was to reduce it by two-thirds from 1990 to uh, 2015. Um, we actually reduced it more than 50%. That's amazing. Um, uh, and if you actually take into account the population growth that occurred, it actually gets close to two-thirds. But, of course, every child that dies is, is one too many. So what we're trying to do is eventually the idea would be to reduce the death rate so that Children across the world have the same death rate as, let's say, the, the best-performing uh, middle-income country. And that is doable with today's technology. It's incredible what you're doing. How, what made you decide, how did you even get into this? Well, I am a, I'm, an, I'm a physician and an infectious disease epidemiologist, and vaccines are the most powerful, uh, most cost-effective tool. And if you really want to make a difference in population health, this is the way to do it. But the second part of this is vaccines don't deliver themselves. So as we now go out and bring these vaccines and, and put health workers and supply chains and data systems in, this is the basis of the primary health care system because, of course, you know, if you reach those children that are currently being reached, they are the ones who, if they get sick, would not have treatment either. And therefore, you know, it's a critical priority to reach them. You know, it's interesting. You say that, that vaccines are the most powerful tool in the public health kit, so to speak. And yet in this country where we take so many of these diseases that we don't have them for granted, and yet we have pockets of, of 
uh, geographical locations where people aren't getting their children vaccinated. It, I, I can only imagine that must drive you crazy. Well, it's interesting. There was a high school in, in a wealthy community in Los Angeles that had lower coverage than in Sudan. And, no. you know, you look at these. When you saw what happened in, in Disney World when yes. um, uh, there was a case of measles brought in. And I think what we have to remember is that I often have dinner in Nairobi breakfast in London, and lunch in New York. And that is within the incubation period of, of these diseases. And so people are traveling all the time. The diseases are traveling. So we in the U.S. are only safe in two ways. One, if we make sure our children are continue to be immunized, but also if we stop the flow of diseases in developing countries. So let's talk about a little bit about what's happening here in the United States. I know that when it comes to vaccines, especially when we do a show about autism, the one thing we say is, oh, well, we should really kind of avoid those questions from from callers about the vaccine because it is such a heated emotional issue. But, but, you know, it's a very complicated issue. So first of all, when you have a child that has a learning disability or Mm -hmm. has autism, of course you want to understand why and you want to know what caused it. And here's the problem. During childhood, there are many vaccines that the children get. And so you will get any disease or autism or anything happen, sometimes it'll occur right before a vaccine, sometimes it'll come right when you get a vaccine, sometimes it'll come right after. The challenge is, is there a correlation? And on this, this has been studied in study after study with hundreds of thousands of, of, of individuals in those studies, and there is zero correlation. The problem is, with the internet, with other systems, you know, people still have that belief, and, and um, at the end, it's a tragedy because if they don't protect their children, then they put their children at risk. So what would be the message, Dr. Berkeley, that you would like to communicate to people about vaccines? Well, first of all, it is, you know, this miraculous tool that has made such a difference. You know, if you look at the world before the Industrial Revolution, everybody was, you know, in poor health. You had children dying. You had huge family sizes because at the end, only a small numbers of those would survive. And what we've seen in the West is the power of modern science. And today, you you expect your children, even if you have one child, to survive, to go ahead and grow, to have their full intellectual capacity. That's something we can do for every child on earth. And if we do that, it reduces population growth. It makes uh, uh, families not tip into poverty because they have to spend money on health care. And it creates children that can learn and live up to their full potential. So this is what we need to do. Let's get back to Gavi for a moment because Gavi is an alliance and it is a private public, a public private partnership. Why the need, Dr. Berkeley, for the private? In that, in that equation? Well, so first of all, the alliance is, is very powerful because we bring everybody together. We don't duplicate, which of course keeps our overhead cost very low. We're 2.47% our overhead cost to give wow. you an idea. But the idea of private is that, first of all, we have to work with the vaccine manufacturers. We need to work with them in partnership to get the supplies, to bring new manufacturers in and to drive down the prices we talked about in the past. But also we have to work with institutions like United Parcel Service or DHL who have the knowledge of how to really deliver the logistics. In Rwanda, we just started a program using drones to deliver vaccines to areas where there are rabies uh, dog bites and and bringing the vaccine there because it's an unexpected thing. So how do you prepare for that? And you're never going to know when they're going to happen. So, you know, this is using the best of the private sector to try to drive this forward. Okay. And how can people get involved if they want to learn more? Well, of course, we would love to have people engage with Gavi. They can financially support. They can advocate for vaccines vaccines, www.gavi.org.
Doc, okay, Dr. Seth Berkley, CEO, Gavi Alliance, and founder of the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for interviewing me. I'm Sam Killerman, and I'm here to speak about gender. I'm hoping to have a, an opportunity to interact with people who I have looked up to from afar for so many years. So this is a really special place to be for me because I'm going to be interacting or hopefully seeing people in person whose work I've admired for years. Dan Savage would be one, um, a person who I've, I've really looked up to and I think has done tremendous things against a lot of odds for many years. Um, so if he is around here, I would love to have the opportunity to interact with him. And I'm going to talk about talking about gender in a non-binary, complex way. So talking about more than two genders, what does that look like? And talking about um, how, while all of us have an experience with gender, that experience is very different from person to person. And what does that mean? And what can we do with that knowledge to make for a more just society? And welcome, everybody. This is Aspen Ideas To Go, a podcast takeover. I'm Perry Peltz, and I'm so pleased to be joined by Piper Kerman. Piper is the author of the best-selling memoir, Orange is the New Black, My Year in a Women's Prison, which chronicles the 13 months she spent in a federal correctional institution on drug trafficking and money laundering charges. Her memoir was adapted into the critically acclaimed Netflix series, Orange is the New Black, which is now in its fourth season. And Piper, welcome. Thanks for having me, Perry. So I have to start by asking you a question. You write this book, and it becomes this major series on Netflix. How does that, how does that feel to see your story out there like that? Well, what I hoped by uh, writing memoir about sort of the stupidest, most immoral choice I made and the consequences for that choice um, was that more people might start thinking and talking about the American criminal justice system and, and very specifically about the prison system, but really the, the, the criminal justice system as a whole. Um, and I believed that, first of all, we understand things from sort of the chicken's eye view, you know, an individual person or group of people um, who are really strong and clear characters. And, you know, I left prison just feeling like I was stunned by all the things that I had experienced and witnessed, and I thought that many, many people in this country don't have any sense of how our criminal justice system functions or fails to function. And so if more people knew and more people cared, then more people might ask for change. So that was my hope in terms of sitting down and actually writing the book. But I think and it's a really good point because there is such a disconnect between the public and people who are in prison. And I think that it's very easy for, for those of us on the outside mm -hmm. to say, well, we don't need to care about what happens in our prisons. I just finished a documentary about uh, inmates who train dogs to become service dogs for veterans with PTSD. Mm -hmm. And I, it's, it's hard because people are very willing to say, I don't need to worry about that. I've got so many things I need to worry about in my own life. Why do I need to worry about people who have done something wrong mm -hmm. against society? Mm -hmm. And yet we do need to care. We absolutely do. You know, of course... Um, Vastly disproportionately, you know, the people and the families and the communities most affected by the criminal justice system are poor communities and disproportionately poor communities of color. Eighty percent of people who are accused of a crime in this country are too poor to afford to hire a lawyer. Um, in talking about my own experience, you know, I'm an upper, upper middle class college educated white woman. 
Um, I hoped that talking about my own experience might get some people who wouldn't otherwise pick up a book about prison to be interested in reading a book about prison. And I thought that if, if I told the story in a way that was accessible to a very broad number of people, that, that, just, that just seemed like a good approach to me. And of course, I'm incredibly grateful that Genji Kohan, who is so brilliant, was interested in the book and was interested in the story. And because Genji Kohan is so brilliant, Netflix was interested in what Genji wanted to do. And of course, here we are with a much, much wider audience to these stories that are depicted in the show, which are, of course, fictional stories. The characters are adaptations in some mm -hmm. cases from the book, but the vast majority of what goes on in the show um, leaps from the book and, and goes in all kinds of different directions. But there is many, many fundamental thread lines and spines of truth and of real-world issues that are present in the show. Um, and so... You know, it has exceeded my wildest dreams I bet in terms it has. of what I hope to accomplish with the book. You know, and I think about the success of the show. It does make me think, obviously, because I've, I've watched it, it's tremendous entertainment value. But you obviously are interested in communicating some very real issues that are happening mm -hmm. in our prison system. Do you think, or what has the feedback been to you? Is that getting through, or, or is it become more of a show that's really based in entertainment? I think that different people come to the show and to the stories that are told in the show with different life experiences of their own. So, for example, very young people, and the show has a huge audience among, you know, high school kids and college kids. Um, young people, particularly uh, fortunate young people, come to the show and have more questions like, is this real? Young people who are more street smart or, or, you know, have been exposed to more sort of troubling situations in their own lives and older people who have sort of seen what goes on in the world come to the show and a little and more so reflect back. This really reminds me of something that I know of a coworker or a family member or, you know, somebody else I know who is in some way touched by the criminal justice system or all the other systems like the foster care system that intersect with the criminal justice system. And so I think that the audience brings their own lived experience to the story. That's true for a book. True. That's also true for a, for a TV show. And what's, what's wonderful is that a, sh a, a popular show like the Netflix series reaches literally tens of millions of amazing? people. And they engage with these characters on a passionate level. They care about these characters who, of course, are fictional women. But what I want, what I hope that uh, many viewers of the show reflect upon is that there are stories that are very similar that are taking place right in their communities, in their local city or county jail or in the state prison that is closest to their home. And that, you know, these stories tether back to the real world and right into their communities. You mentioned, obviously, being a woman. Two-thirds of women doing time in federal prison are behind bars for nonviolent drug offenses. Mm -hmm. um, the targets of those, of those drug offenses may be men, but many of the victims seem to be women. In fact, so much so it's been some of these conspiracy laws have been dubbed the girlfriend, mm -hmm. the girlfriend laws because so many women have been kind of ensnared in this in this system did you did you see any of that and what are your thoughts about 
um, what's happening. I mean, communities are really being decimated by the fact that so many women are winding up going to prison for these nonviolent offenses. Absolutely. So the vast majority, at least two-thirds of women in both state and federal prisons, Mm -hmm. are there for nonviolent offenses. Now, of course, a nonviolent offense can still have a victim. Absolutely. um, But, you know, the vast majority of women who get locked up are locked up for pretty low-level offenses. Drug offenses, low-level property crimes. um, And so... The effect that those women's incarceration have has this tremendous echo effect because most women in prison are moms. Most of those incarcerated moms are the moms of minor children. So suddenly when we choose to incarcerate a mom, her kids are very likely left unprotected. Maybe that family is able to provide for those children, but... When we lock up a mom, her kids are five times more likely to go into the foster care system than when we lock up a dad. It's devastating to lose a father into prison or jail, but it's seismic when it's a mother. Um, So the effect on, you know, families and on those broader communities is really, really profound when we choose to incarcerate a woman. And so often we choose to incarcerate women for low-level offenses, not for the violent crimes that most concern us. I always say that female incarceration in the United States is a very ordinary and everyday example of how committed we've been to harsh punishment in this country. When we think about the death penalty, when we think about sentencing children to die in prison, we're one of the only countries in the world that would ever do that. (laughs) Um, Those are extreme examples because those tend to be, you know, responses to very serious offenses. But when we incarcerate women in the United States... It is a much more ordinary and everyday use of harsh punishment. And I think that that is something to think about because I think, you know, many people are not going to move off of harsh punishment for serious, for, for murder or for, you know, a very terrible sexual assault. But thinking about whether incarceration is really the best choice for a low level drug offense, for a low level property crime, is worth thinking about because it's very expensive to incarcerate people. Um, broadly, Uh, and it's a very expensive intervention to think about um, using a prison or a jail cell as our solution to things like drug offenses. No, not the best way to rehabilitate individuals. No. Piper, in this two minutes we have left on our podcast, I'm curious, what are you working on now? Right now, I teach nonfiction writing in two state prisons in Ohio, uh, a women's facility and a men's facility. My students are amazing and fascinating, and the stories that they are choosing to tell about their own lives are, you know, they're beyond. They're so interesting. They're so heartbreaking sometimes. They're so funny sometimes. And um, the similarities and differences between my female and male students are really interesting to me. Um, The men sort of take to... Uh, telling their own stories in epic terms like fish to water. It's more coaxing. Uh, Women don't always think about their lives in epic terms, and particularly women who are among the most marginalized women who are the women and girls that we put in prison. So that, um, I've been doing that for about a year and a half, and I just, I really am very grateful to be able to do it, uh, and the department is allowing me to, to do that. And so my students are writing their own stories, and we're also reading first-person narrative nonfiction, generally memoirs, by people who have been incarcerated, people who have worked in the system, like prison guards and, uh, and prison librarians, for example. And so my students are also analyzing those stories and the different ways that those people have chosen to tell their own tales. 
Piper, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you, Perry. It's great talking to you. Piper Kerman, author of Orange is the New Black, My Year in a Women's Prison. This has been Aspen Ideas to Go podcast. And thanks for being with us, everybody. My name is Lisa Kaltenegger. I'm the director of the Carl Sagan Institute at Cornell and an astronomer. And my passion is looking for life, but not on our planet, but a planet, a world that orbits another star, another sun. And really, when you look up at the sky at night, if you just count five of the stars you can see, these are five suns, and one of those has potentially a planet that could be like ours. And we're at the verge of figuring that out because we're building the next generation of big telescopes that can read the air in that planet. And thus we can figure out if we're alone in the universe. We know that we have 200 billion stars in our galaxy alone. And there are billions of galaxies. And every fifth star has a planet that could be another Earth. So if none of them have life, wouldn't that be a big surprise? How rare or how often is their life? We don't even know that yet, but we live in a time where we are the first people in all of human history where we can figure that out. And that's what I love about this quest. And this is also what I love about talking about this here at Aspen Ideas because it brings a lot of questions at the forefront of everybody's mind, the forefront of science, of social, of politics, to the surface and lets people with very, very different backgrounds discuss them and maybe even bring to light some aspects that you would have never thought about it on your own. And welcome, everybody. This is an Aspen Ideas to Go podcast takeover, and I'm so pleased to be joined by Adam Foss. Adam is a lawyer and co-founder of the Prosecutor Integrity Institute, which empowers prosecutors to make more data-driven and informed decisions with an eye towards ending mass incarceration. Adam, so glad to have you here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And Adam, tell me about, first of all, why the Prosecutor Integrity Institute? You were a di an assistant district attorney, is that correct, for correct. how many years? For eight years. What made you decide that you needed to leave that and, and start um, a nonprofit organization? The impact as prosecutors that we make day to day is great, and it's, it's um, really fulfilling and kind of what kept me at the job for as long as it did. Um, but there came a point where I realized that I wasn't making the impact that I sort of wanted on a, on a bigger scale, so I decided to leave and start this organization with uh, a few partners. And tell us about what the what is it that you're trying to accomplish? Uh, there's, a, there's a missing uh, need for prosecutors when they first start out to be trained in a lot of things that, that we don't really learn in law school. Um, basically about how human behavior interacts with the environment, with each other, with law enforcement. And uh, it's basically sort of being smarter on crime but from the prosecutor's role and understanding the interplay between adolescent brain development and trauma and poverty and racism, all these things that we walk into district attorney's offices unequipped with. 
So how are you going to help young people? I mean, we talk about, you mentioned mass incarceration. First of all, for our listeners, let's just set the stage a little bit. What is the problem here in the United States when it comes to mass incarceration? Uh, the problem here in the United States when it comes <laughs> to mass incarceration. problem. Yeah, everything. <laughs> uh, we have 5% of the world's population and a quarter of its uh, incarcerated population. There are 2.2 million people in jails and prisons. That's larger than something like 130 countries or so. You know, it's a huge number of people. Um, if we divided, if we cut the number of people in prison in half right now, we would still lead the world in incarceration. And the, the problem that sort of uh, critics of, of the idea that there is mass incarceration thrown around, there are prisons and jails that are, that are uh, emptying out and their, their cells open. And that's not the issue. The issue is the sheer numbers and the disproportionate numbers that affect uh, people of color and, and low-income uh, people. What about, first of all, let, let me just back up. When we talk about mass incarceration and the really horrific numbers that you're speaking about, why do we have that problem here in the United States? How did we even get here? It started, uh, we've, we've always sort of had a uh, carceral state, but it really started in the, in the 70s, uh, in the 80s, with tough-on-crime policies, which really drove the, the prison populations up. Um, the war on drugs, the abject failure of the war on drugs really sort of uh, inflated the p prison populations and still today we're still dealing with those numbers and while they're coming down, they're not coming down anywhere remotely to where we need them to be, to be even at the top of the list of, of the world's population. We're, we're so far ahead of that that there needs to be a lot to do um, to get those numbers down. And uh, most recently, it's been um, school discipline policies that have sort of fed into this idea of a cradle-to-prison, a school-to-prison pipeline, which keeps these numbers up. When you talk about the school-to-prison pipeline, I think one of the things that is just so distressing as well is we send young people to prison, and oftentimes they go, on for, go in for these you know, minor drug offenses, nonviolent offenses, and yet we criminalize them when they're in the prison system because it almost is to survive that you have to have that happen, and we start this cycle. That's correct. And the, the ironic thing about the cycle is um, we put them into a, a system that's, that's failing at its, at its task and um, they come out, the, these young people come out and they're much worse off than they were before. They go back into the criminal justice system getting more and more serious and then ultimately we incarcerate them for really long periods of time. And we punish that person for that failure when really it's a, a fa failures of other systems that, that had um, interacted with this young person well before the criminal justice system ever came into play. Yeah, I know. I, I remember once doing a story at Rikers Island in, in New York City and being struck because interviewing somebody who had been in the system, he was a, I mean, he must have been in his late 20s, had been in 37 times. And I, it was one of those stunning moments where you think that's not possible. It must have been a mistake what he was talking about. And in fact, it wasn't. But it speaks to this revolving door syndrome that we have. Yes. The irony is that we never, we never look at the failures of the system. We, we, we blame uh, the police, we blame the families, we blame children, um, but we're never looking at sort of why it took 37 times for this kid, for you to, to meet this kid at Rikers Island, or why young people that are in my courtrooms have been in 19 different foster homes before they meet me. Um, when we know what that does to, to young persons psyche about their ability to participate in school. When they disengage from school, they're likely to, to be involved in, in street violence. Um, we're looking at all the wrong places and investing in all the wrong places. And you start to think maybe this is the way that it was designed to be. What about alternatives to incarceration? What is it that we can do so that we can actually 
not only fix the incarceration problem, but, but give, give young people a chance to actually turn their lives around. Literally anything else. You know, we, t- we <laughs> pick, talk, pick anything. We talk about alternatives to incarceration. Uh, like there are, are, you know, five stores out there where we can go and, and select from. But when you look at the prison population and the, and the people who are in there now who have, who have lived this trajectory from the juvenile justice system, child welfare system to the juvenile justice system to the adult system, each one of them has the same story. And there are about 10 data points in that story. And those data points should inform us about where we can be investing up front. I've, I'm, I'm a young person. I've suffered trauma that may have been physical abuse or sexual abuse or I've observed it. I had poor nutrition. I had poor schooling. Um, I was involved in the child welfare system. I was a single parent. I had a parent that was incarcerated. All of those are indicators of uh, trajectory into the criminal justice system, and yet we wait for our kids to get there before we start thinking about those things. Talk, talk a little bit, if you can, about the, about the problem of what happens in this country with, with juveniles when it comes to the prison system. Uh, we, despite all the developmental and behavioral research we know about the, the difference between adults and children, uh, we treat children in the criminal justice system the same that we do as adults. And there, there are accommodations made for kids. You know, the, the courtroom's closed, and um, there's more of a, more of a, ideal of rehabilitation. But on the ground, the way that it plays out, you'd, you'd think you were sitting in an adult courtroom, and that is um, negligent because of all the developmental differences there are between children and adults and boys and girls. Something else that we don't talk about, but we just try to treat everyone the same and get a different result. And yeah, and there's so much science that's now coming out about actual brain changes that take place in situations and stressful situations like this. Adam, we could go on and on. Just tell people how they can get involved and learn more about your organization and the work you're doing. Sure. Um, I am all over the social media, so uh, Adam John Foss is my handle for all of that. Um, Prosecutor Integrity is the name, the temporary name of my organization, and it's uh, prosecutorintegrity.com. I also work with uh, John Legend and Ty Stachorius on uh, a campaign called Free America, uh, which you can just Google, and uh, there's lots of information out there about those things. Adam, thank you so much for being here with us. We really appreciate your time. It was an honor. Thank you. Thanks. That's our podcast takeover host and Aspen Ideas Festival presenter, Perry Peltz. She's a documentary filmmaker and public health advocate co-producing a series with the New York Times called Conversation on Race. Peltz also hosts The Perry Peltz Show and Dr. Radio Reports on Sirius XM. You heard her discussions with other festival presenters on the ground at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Watch for other episodes this week that feature more festival presenters taking over the podcast. Podcaster Franklin Leonard, journalist Maria Inahosa and Emily Yaffe, and comedian and radio host Pete Dominic are interviewing festival presenters and experts in a variety of topics. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin, Eliza Costas, and myself, and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thank you for listening. 